Hebrews chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 to 13. If you've uh, ever studied uh, the book of Hebrews, you'll know that there are a number of what we call warning passages in the book. And uh, what the book of Hebrews does, it explains something about what Jesus has achieved and then it gives like a warning in case we reject what God has said. And so that's what this passage is. It's one of these passages that urge us to to, um, diligently uh, make use of what God has said. So let's read it together. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God had said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest, and those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, as was said before, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, or attitudes of the heart, sorry. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Amen. Well, before we uh, listen to God's word explained... Let's pray and ask God to give us understanding. Heavenly Father, uh, we know this is your word because it says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for uh, rebuking, correcting, and teaching and training in righteousness. We know, Lord, that you give it so that we might be equipped for every good work. So help us, Father, to listen carefully, that we might understand this passage that we would see the relevance for it for our lives today and that we would respond appropriately. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to turn from uh, things that which displease you, that we might turn to Christ. We pray, Father, that you would bless us through the word and equip us to serve you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you noticed, but this passage that we're looking at is all about God's promise of rest. 
Now, when you hear the word rest, what comes to mind? You know, about two years ago, I took my family on a camping holiday down to the southern coast of New South Wales. Now, it was at a time when I'd just completed my first semester of college. Jasmine had just completed her first semester of teaching Esther. And we were both very tired. And I remember as soon as I finished that last exam, we quickly loaded up the car and at the crack of dawn the next day, we got in and we headed to our destination. But the holiday didn't begin at that point because it was an eight-hour trip with a carload of children. And I'm telling you now, that's no holiday. There's no relaxing going on there. And when we arrived, again, no relaxing because we had to set up camp. And that's fairly stressful when you've got a bunch of hyperactive children. Uh, running around excited. Now the thing is, the sun went down at 5.30 at that time of year, and so we had to cook dinner in the dark. But then we put the children to bed at 6.30. They thought it was late, but it was very early. And they went straight to sleep, which was good. And Jasmine and I, well, we couldn't really be bothered lighting a fire, and it was quite cold, so we just went to bed uh, after them. And we were so tired that we slept 12 hours straight. And for the rest of the time on the holiday, we just pretty much you know, sat around in the sun, sat by the campfire, went for short walks on the beach. It was the most restful time that I can remember. And so when I think of a good rest, that's what I think of, a camping holiday by the beach. But what about you? What comes to mind when you hear the word rest? Maybe it's a comfortable chair that you have, uh, that you put your feet up at the end of a day's work. Or perhaps it's going on a relaxing holiday. Maybe it's sending the kids to grandma's for the week. But what do you think about when you hear the word rest? See, the passage that we're looking at, it talks about a rest that is far greater than any holiday by the beach. It's a rest that's greater than any comfortable chair. It's even a rest that's better than a good night's sleep. And this rest that God has promised is so great that this passage is written to make sure that you don't miss out. The point of this passage is that you would enter into God's promise of rest. So the first thing we need to do is to say, well, what is it? What is this rest that God has promised? And if you look through the passage, you quickly see that what it is, it's a commentary on Psalm 95. Remember, Psalm 95 was the psalm that I read at the start of the service, and at the end of that psalm, it talked about God's rest. And so this passage is a commentary on that rest. It's explaining what it's like and how we get into it. And so if you look, you'll see that Psalm 95 is quoted in verse 3, it's quoted in verse 5 and verse 7. But the other thing that you might see is that the discussion of God's rest, it's fairly hard to follow. In fact, as I was preparing this service, uh, the sermon, I actually found it quite difficult to understand. And it, it took a lot of time to read and think. And I read some commentaries. And the reason it's hard to follow is because it seems as if the passage is talking about two different types of rest. See, on the one hand, it's talking about the rest that God promised the Israelites in the promised land. Uh, you see that in verse uh, 2 talks about these people who didn't enter the rest. Uh, Psalm 95 originally was written talking about those Israelites who didn't enter the promised land. 
it says that God banned them from entering that rest, which, of course, was the promised land. And so in the Old Testament, God's rest was the promised land. Uh, Remember the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt, across the desert, and into the promised land. And we read about it in Numbers 14, where the first generation who came out of Egypt, they didn't enter because of unbelief. But later on, Joshua led the people, that, that second generation, into that promised land. And it was a land of rest. Because when they entered that land, they were no longer slaves to an Egyptian tyrant. They weren't working seven days a week making clay bricks uh, in Egypt. They weren't wandering across the desert anymore. They weren't living in fear of attack from enemies In fact, this promised land was a place where they would have boundaries set up and they would be safe in that land. They wouldn't have to worry about enemies. They would enjoy the abundance of the land. Remember, it was a land of uh, flowing with milk and honey, a land of riches, a land of blessing. It was a true rest. But what the writer of Hebrews picks up on in this passage is that even when the Israelites were living in that land... Under the time of King David, where everything was safe and secure, at that time, King David wrote Psalm 95. And in that psalm, he was talking about a rest that was still promised. And so in some ways, that may have been confusing for the Israelites because they, well, as far as they were concerned, they were already in their land of rest. But no, it was not the ultimate rest that God had promised He was still talking about something still to come. And that's why if you look at verse 8 in the passage, uh, whoops, wrong chapter. Verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So in other words, the promised land was never the ultimate rest for the people of God. It was just a picture of, to point them to something greater, the reality. And if you like, it's, uh, you know, in some ways it's like uh, if you're going to build a house, the planner might give you a detailed picture of what the house will look like, but when you receive that picture, you don't have your house yet. It just points to the reality, which is the, the built house. That's what the promised land was like for the Israelites. It was a picture pointing them to a reality that was still to come. So what is that reality? Well, we see something of that in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, you see that the writer of, of this passage talks about God's rest at creation. Remember when God made the world, he, he spent six days, created everything. And at the end of each day, it said there was morning and evening the first day. There was morning and evening the second day. But when you get to the seventh day... It says that God rested from all his work. And then you don't get that little formula, there was morning and evening, the seventh day. It doesn't end like that. In fact, it gives the impression that that when God entered into that rest on the seventh day, that that was the beginning of a rest that would last for eternity. And so if you look at verse 4, it says, Somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. 
But then listen to verse 5. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So what the writer of Hebrews does, he combines these two aspects of rest. On the one hand, you've got the rest of, um, that was promised to the Israelites, something much greater than the promised land, and God's eternal rest that he entered into when he finished creation, it combines the two things. And so what this rest is, that God is promising still today, is that rest that he entered into. When he finished creation, he invites us into today. God's promise of rest is an invitation for people like us to spend eternity with God in heaven. That's the rest that God has promised. And it's a rest that is far greater than any holiday by the beach. It's far greater than even a good night's sleep because the rest that God promises is eternal. It doesn't end. You know, you can go on a holiday by the beach, but you've soon got to pack up and come home again, back into the reality of a busy life. But God's rest in heaven will last forever. And it's such a beautiful metaphor, a metaphor of rest. You know, that no longer are we struggling through this world, weighed down by all the burdens that are brought about by sin. But it's a rest that will be with God himself forever in heaven. It's a wonderful picture. But it's an invitation to people like us to enter God's rest. And remember why this passage was written? So that you won't miss out. And that's why if you look at verse 1 and verse 11, what we have is two commands in this passage about how we should respond to God's promise of rest. So two commands. We'll look at each of them in turn. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, and here comes the command, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So this command is actually a command to fear. Fear falling short of God's rest. You know, falling short is a phrase that we would use to describe someone who begins a race but doesn't finish it. You know, there are many people who begin following Jesus but don't finish. And this passage is a warning against that. It's a warning about making a good start and yet failing to finish, falling short. There's a danger that exists. You know, the original readers of this letter, they were in this danger. Because if you read the letter, you soon realise that they were a bunch of Christians who were facing persecution. And ever since they became followers of Jesus, they'd had a rough time. They had property confiscated, They'd been treated harshly, and so they were tempted to give up, tempted to go back to being a Jew where life was easy. But you know, it's not just persecution that puts you in danger of falling short. Because later on, the the book of Hebrews talks about sin that easily entangles. You know, it describes life as a race where we're heading, you know, the goal is heaven. And yet sin can easily entangle us in that race and slow us down. You, know, you imagine a runner 
running along and getting caught up in some, um, you know, a big pile of barbed wire. You know, he gets entangled. He can't finish the race. That's what sin is like. It can do that. And if we think about, uh, you remember the parable of the seed that Jesus talked about? He, and he explained how people respond to the preaching of the word. You know, you have some who, who begin like, um, you know, seeds springing up among thorns. Start out really well, but then the, th- the thorns choke out the word. And he, Jesus said that those sort of people are the ones who are choked out by all of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth. And so there are plenty of people who begin following Jesus, but don't keep going. They fall short. And this passage is a warning against that. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of God's rest. He gives a reason why we need to pay attention in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. That is, the Israelites. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. So he's talking about the Israelites, saying that uh, that, that wilderness generation, you know, the first bunch of Israelites who came out of Egypt, they were the Israelites who God saved out of Egypt, brought them across the desert right to the promised land. Okay, we read about it in Numbers 14, remember? And they didn't enter. Now, from a human point of view, that's hard to see why. Because, you know, God seems to have made it pretty clear to them what he was doing. Uh, God, I think, had made it pretty clear that he was, you know, a powerful God, that he could actually bring them in. That, yeah, yeah, there's some big armies living in there. But, hey, God's bigger. He had made it clear to them. You know, he had defeated the Egyptians through plagues and, you know, the Red Sea crossing Uh, He had brought them uh, across the desert to Mount Sinai where he gave them the Ten Commandments. You would think that it was pretty clear that if God promised that he would bring them into that land, that he would do it. All that the Israelites had to do was believe him. And yet when they came to the edge of that promised land and they heard about the armies that lay on the other side, it says in Numbers 14 that they hardened their hearts. They did not believe God. And instead they refused to do what God said. And so they missed out on that rest because of unbelief. But what this passage is saying is that it's possible for you here to make the same mistake. It's possible for you to have had the gospel preached to you just like the Israelites, and yet fail to believe it. Do you know how many people were in that generation of Israelites that didn't enter the Promised Land? When we read the book of Numbers, it says that they had 603,550 men who were able to fight in the army, plus 22,000 Levites, plus women. Okay, That's over a million people. Over a million people God brought out of Egypt, across the desert, right to the edge of the promised land, and yet they didn't enter in. Only two men out of that whole group of people entered. And that was 
Caleb and Joshua. And the reason given is because they were the only two people who believed God. All the rest of that first generation died in the desert. They fell short of the promised rest. But the warning is that some of you could make an even bigger mistake. There's a danger that exists that we might miss God's eternal rest, the rest of heaven. And that's why verse 1 is a command. Let us be careful that none of you have uh, be found to have fallen short of it. So imagine living your life thinking that everything on the other side of death will be fine, only to get there and to stand before God and realize that you haven't made it. It's a scary thought. So we should fear falling short. And the point of this verse, it's not just ignorant and evil people who miss out on heaven. But it can be people who have sat in church all their life. It can be people who have grown up in a Christian home, who have heard the gospel, but haven't combined hearing it with believing it. And so this command is a wake-up call to us to actually examine where we stand with God. Have we understood the gospel and have we believed it? Because the only thing that will keep you out of God's promised rest is unbelief. But verse 3 is an encouragement. Listen to verse 3. It says, Now we who have believed enter that rest. Everyone who believes that Jesus is God and has died on the cross for your sins will enter into God's rest. That's why Jesus promised in Matthew eleven twenty eight. he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What a wonderful promise. You enter into God's rest by faith, by believing the good news about Jesus. But remember, it's only those who believe who enter the rest. That's why we should fear falling short. We should fear falling into that same unbelief that the Israelites had against God. Well, that's the first command. We should fear falling short. The second command comes at verse 11. And this command is a command to make every effort to enter. It says, therefore... Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So make every effort to enter. And it makes good sense, doesn't it? If God has promised an eternal rest to people, then it's, it's obviously the most important thing to, to make sure you get into. And of course it would say make every effort It's not something that, oh yeah, I'll do that one day. I'll worry about that later on. No, no, make every effort now to enter that rest. Do you know there's a lot of people in this world who make every effort to achieve a temporary rest, you know, rest in this life. I mean, we do it all the time. We carefully manage our finances so that we can go on a good holiday at least once a year because we like to have a good rest. Uh, Most of us spend our lives working hard so that we can enjoy a comfortable retirement. And everyone gets that. You know, everyone does that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But 
what Jesus warned us about is about being a rich fool. And that is someone who places all of their energy and effort into trying to get as much rest out of this life while failing to think about the rest that is eternal. We need to make every effort to enter the rest that is eternal. And that's what verse 11 is commanding us to do. So what does it mean then? What does it mean to make every effort to enter God's rest? Well, we don't have to guess because we're told in verses 12 and 13. See, the effort that the writer is talking about is closely tied to what we do with God's word. So you look at verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces, uh, sorry, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you know, for me, that has always been uh, one of those great memory verses that uh, we tuck away in our minds because, I mean, it's such a great verse that explains how God's word works in our lives to expose our hearts and to change us. And so it's a great memory verse. But the thing about memory verses is that it's easy to forget the context, you know, why the, the verse is given at this point in the Bible and not at some other point. So we need to stop and think, why, why is it at this point, in the context of urging us to enter God's rest, why does the writer then go on to talk about how the Bible works in our lives? Well, the reason is, is because God's word is given to help us to enter his rest. See, this passage, remember, it shows that the only thing that will keep you out of heaven is unbelief. The Bible is given to expose unbelief in our hearts. That's what verse 12 is saying. That the Bible has this way of detecting unbelief and exposing it. It's actually, you know, a a lie detector. You know, you see it on the movie where they plug all these little things on and, and the person is asked a series of questions and the lie detector will pick up if he's lying. And if you watch Mythbusters, which I occasionally do, Uh, they show that lie detectors are actually fairly accurate, that you can't beat a lie detector, even though the movies say you can. But they're actually pretty accurate, according to Mythbusters anyway. Well, what verse 12 says here is that God's word is like an unbelief detector. And God's word never fails. You can't escape what God's word says. It's an unbelief detector, and what it does, it it says that it penetrates to the, the deepest and darkest areas of our heart and exposes what we believe. God's word exposes whether we are believers or unbelievers. It exposes what, what we really value, the things that we love, the, the things that we strive for in life. It exposes our hopes and dreams. And God knows what's going on in our heart because verse 13 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So one day we will all stand before God and there will be no excuse making then. But what this verse is saying, verse 12, is that God's word works now to expose what's really going on in our hearts. It exposes whether we are believers or unbelievers. And it does that now. And so you need to pay attention to God's word because that way you can know 
if you really belong to him. That's why it's important that you actually read God's word. It's important that you listen to it. It's even important that you go to church to, to hear the word preached. Uh, it's important even to, for example, join a Bible study. I mean, these things aren't commanded, but they're certainly a good idea given what God's word is. It would even be a good idea to meet up with a friend and read the Bible together so that your heart can be exposed, so you can see what's really going on. Because God's word exposes the sin in our lives so that we can turn away from it. It exposes unbelief, and unbelief is the only thing that will keep you out of God's rest. See, it's unlikely that you will fall away like the wilderness generation did if you regularly read God's word, if you regularly listen to it, believe it, and obey it. It's unlikely that you will fall away. And so what this passage is saying to us is that we make every effort to enter God's rest by regularly listening to his word, believing it, and responding appropriately. Unbelief is the only thing that will keep you out. But God's word exposes unbelief and points us back to Jesus, who alone has provided a way of dealing with our sin. So we see in Hebrews 4 that God's promise of rest still stands today. He's still inviting people to share in his rest that he entered into when he finished creation. And so the most important thing for you to do, more important than anything else, is to make sure that you will enter that rest. And you enter by believing the good news about Jesus. And God has given us his word to strengthen your faith so that you won't fall into unbelief like the Israelites did so long ago. So make every effort to enter God's rest.